how about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Matt Joswiak, welcome to the Unwasted podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. I think many of us have had that moment where we notice that some part of our workplace is wasteful and a lot of us kind of can brush it off or accept it as normal, but you didn't. You know, I, I really respect that you have identified a problem in the restaurant industry and instead of just kind of settling for waste as a cost of doing business, you really pushed yourself to turn that problem into an entirely new organization and solution that is today, you know, Rethink Food New York City. You know, I want to get into Rethink Food, but I'd love to start by actually setting the stage for folks listening. You know, as I understand it, you had jobs at what many people would consider, you know, top of the line, prestigious restaurants, but you made the decision to start a nonprofit. Can you kind of walk me through your career in restaurants briefly? What drew you into the world of kitchens and then ultimately drew you out of it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, <clears throat> I was, uh, you know, r- raised in Wisconsin, and uh, when my parents split up, I ended up in Kansas City, and then eventually over at the uh, at the University of Kansas. And when I started, uh, I quickly realized that, you know, like I had a part time job, but that just wasn't going to cut it, and I was going to have to get like uh, like basically a full time job and maybe even another one to kind of cover the cost of living and cover the cost of school. So I started uh, as a dishwasher and this is just kind of, you know, my, you know, just, just, I, it was a necessity. I had no passion for cooking. I had no, you know, there was nothing there. It's not like I like dreamed of being a chef or anything. Um, <clears throat> but I immediately found a really good community and it inspired me to kind of just go for it. So my logic was, well, you know, school's really expensive. I have this in into the restaurant industry at this nice restaurant in Kansas. Well, why don't I just go 110% and just try to be the best at it as I could. So I went on this, you know, kind of journey. Um, you know, I staged at L2O and worked at Quince in Chicago and moved to Europe and, you know, lived in Lyon, France and worked at a really famous restaurant called Pierre Orsi. Um, I was at Noma for a little bit, came back to the States in Chicago was, uh, you know, at Alinea for a really brief amount of time. And then um, <clears throat> kind of just looking for, you know, the best possible food that I could. And at some point, I had a friend that I was working with in, uh, in Copenhagen, and he was from the South Bronx. And he invited me to kind of help create this program where we taught kids how to cook. And it really was extremely fulfilling for me the same way that when I started cooking, it was fulfilling for me. So I realized that I had this skill set and I wanted to share it. So I moved to New York and, and started to help him. Um, <clears throat> I very quickly realized while I was at 11 Madison Park and, and working on this program that I should probably be doing what is needed and not what is fulfilling to me. Hmm. And that's like been a huge theme uh, at Rethink, a huge theme just in general in my life is that, you know, this idea that we do what we're passionate about or we do this is, is great, but it's, it's self-serving. And we don't, you know, we don't live in a community for ourselves. We live in a, we live in a, we still live in a very tight knit community where we all have our jobs and we do our things. So I thought, what is the thing that is most needed in this, in this industry? What, what, what will be the most beneficial thing for the community? And it didn't have to be a nonprofit. It could have been a for-profit. It could have been me working at a government agency. But Rethink just kind of came out of just the sheer necessity. People really were struggling with donating their food. There was not a lot of really good options out there unless you had thousands of pounds of food to donate. So <clears throat> how do we fix that? Why is it happening? Um, and, you know, that's how it all got started. Wow, that's really awesome. So, so the, can you describe more about this kind of aha moment? Like, when did you truly realize like this rethink concept needed to exist? Or, you know, what were you seeing in restaurants that led you, led you to believe that, you know, I really need to create something here that doesn't yet exist? Um, there, there was, there definitely was a eureka moment. Um, you know, it once, you know, at one point I was having dinner with my fiance and, and she really, 
you know, she's a, she's a really smart girl, tough girl from Staten Island. And she, uh, she's always kind of pushing me to do more and do more and do more. And we were sitting at dinner and, and I was explaining, you know, like kind of in between teaching kids how to cook and what should I do and what's my purpose. And she's like, it might not be hard. It might not be glamorous, but you should do it and you should do it well. And you should focus on something very small, just a problem that you understand that you can fix. And it was some of the best advice I ever got. And, you know, I think over the next couple of weeks, you know, I just started, I couldn't get it out of my head. It was infectious. And I, I had this whiteboard and I just drew it out how it would work. And it was really like a eureka moment. Like I really realized that, you know, there's ways that this can work and rethink is, you know, in 2020 is stepping into developing revenue streams and other aspects of the business. And like, how is this possible? You know, how can this all work together? And we can build a machine that like create that, that utilizes all of this excess food that's in the, that's kind of in our world, distributes it to people who need it and can pay for itself is like a really crazy, wonderful thing that if it was in every city um, could really solve a major problem. That's amazing. That's so cool. I mean, one that you had that influence in your life, someone really pushing you to say, Hey, I think you can do bigger and better things. And two, that you took the time, you know, it wasn't just an idea that you're like, Oh, cool. And then you went to sleep and forgot about it. Like you really whiteboarded it out. You pushed yourself to figure it out. I'd, that's really amazing. And I, I'd love to get into the, the scale, what you just touched on this idea that there is this tremendous amount of wasted food and wasted potential happening in restaurants. For folks that haven't worked in restaurants, can you share, you know, why does food waste happen at such a large scale in restaurants in America? Uh, it's really simple. And, and, and it's very important to note that it, it's not, it's not really any one person's fault. It's not like restaurant owners are like, you know, twirling their mustache, like let's throw away food in front of the poor people. Like that's not, that's not at all. Yeah, it is. They're, they're very uh, interested in, in finding solutions. But the reality is, is that we live in an extremely competitive environment, especially when it comes to food, you know, like, and in New York, New York's dining scene is, is cutthroat. Yep. And you have to produce like 10, sometimes even 20% more of what you're going to use that night. Cause you can't run out. You know, if you, if you had to go to the nomad hotel and wait and you ordered a chicken and you had to wait for them to pull the chicken out, let it temp roast, let it rest and like go through like the whole hour, hour, 15 minute process, you'd be furious. Yeah. You know, they have to prep this stuff ahead of time. They have to make sure that they can move. And that's just like a nat very natural part of, of cooking. Um, and that's why it happens. And there's just never been a solution for them on what to do with it. They have a place where they can put their compost. They have a place that they can recycle their plastics. They have a place where they can, you know, throw the plate waste. They, they can biodigest citrus peels, which the Nomad Hotel does, um, you know, but they can't, they, they don't have any good usable place for excess food. So when we think about rethink, we try to think about it like, like how did recycling happen? Like, I'm sure everybody was like, no way. Another trash bin. Are you serious? I don't even have room for the first one. You know, like, I'm sure that that was like a whole thing. Yeah. But now if you don't recycle, you're like, you know, it's like the worst thing ever. Huh. You're I love that idea. Yeah, you're, it sounds like essentially you're looking at kind of the choice architecture that's in front of you and saying, what if this were different? And I think uh, that's such a powerful thing. I think in America, we're, you know, understandably very wedded to the idea of choice as a good thing. But I think a lot of times what we don't think about is that the real power isn't choosing. It's actually creating the menu of options from which people choose. And I, I think right. what I love about your model, and you know, I want to get into this more, is this idea of you're literally questioning the very menu of options that's in front of you. Like you're saying the defaults are not enough. We need to create more options. So, you know, in terms of like the, the problem you were overcoming, you know, maybe this is a dumb question, but I just want to ask it, you know, why weren't restaurants donating food exactly? Like what was it that was missing that was preventing well-meaning restaurants from just donating their excess or potentially wasted food? I think it was a misunderstanding in uh, like a couple of things. I think education plays a big part of it. 
you know, like sustainability is now just starting to be taught in culinary schools. Um, <clears throat> I think that, you know, uh, this idea of foodborne illness liability, which I hope at this point everybody knows that, you know, you're protected underneath the Good Samaritan law, um, you know, was kind of an issue. But I think this like fundamental issue, your restaurant closes at 10. Yep. And let's say that you wanted to go donate your excess food. You're not going to leave the food in the walk-in because, you know, you're, you know, you, you're, you're trying to properly rope. You have a, you have an operation, your standard operating procedures are to take in orders, make food, sell the food, you know, and it has to go through the cycle. You don't want stuff that's not, it just makes for a very messy place if you bring in all these other excess stuff and try to store it. And then, you know, soup kitchens aren't open at 10, 11 o'clock at night. That's just hmm. not real. Yep. So rethinks like when we approach the problem at rethink, it was really important for us to look at like what are like what are those key issues? So we put them on a white. We did. We whiteboard the whole thing. It was containers, liability, um, <clears throat> pickups, timing, like when when they were there, when we were able to receive it, and um, you know this idea that if you give me just a little bit of something that we can't use it for something else. So like people would have a quart container of roasted persimmons and they'd say, well, he can't do anything with that. And they're like, no, give it to us. It'll go on a big salad and there'll be like 20 persimmons in it. It'll be great. Yeah. Um, so having the ability to really respect the soup kitchen as a food and beverage establishment and not try to push random ingredients on them late at night was a big part of how we designed the model. I, I love that idea of respect you just underlined. You know, before we started recording, you and I were chatting about this idea of getting your excess to fit into someone's needs. And I'd love to unpack that a bit. This, you know, the essentially, if you're not careful, even well-meaning people can kind of dump food on nonprofits. And that's actually maybe more harm than good. Can you can you unpack that a bit about like, how do we start to really respect soup kitchens as culinary establishments and not just kind of a home for waste? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And this is something that's very, very near and dear to our heart with the dignity and respect being core to, you know, core to our mission at Rethink. Um, you know, I always kind of make the joke, it's like, you know, you throw a barbecue, and then you have like, you know, 10 packs of leftover hamburger buns, like go ahead and try to sell those to McDonald's. They're not going to buy them. You know? yeah. like, they're not interested <laughs> in them. It doesn't fit in with their, with their standard operating procedures and all that kind of stuff. So people get really frustrated and we, we talk to them a lot. Like, you know, well, people are hungry. And I, I took my, I took, you know, a six, you know, six chickens over to the local soup kitchen and they said, well, I can't take that. So why is that? And they, they get upset. Yep. But the reality of it is that they're super busy, understaffed. You know, it's, it's, it, the nonprofit world is extremely challenging. And the idea that, like, they're just a, a dumping ground for whatever stuff, it's, it takes time to take food in. It takes time to organize it. It takes, you know, it, you need refrigeration space. Refrigeration space equals electricity bills. Like, it's, it's, it's complicated. So rethink like what we do is we actually, we try to be that, that place where people can just give us whatever they have. We don't take food directly from consumers, but we take food because they're not certified vendors, but we take food from any restaurants. And, and sometimes people are like, what are you going to do with five pounds of Thai bird chili? Well, we're going to pickle some of them. We're going to make uh, we're going to marinate chicken with some Thai bird chili. And we're going to add a little bit to this pesto sauce we're making and, you know, we're going to use it as an ingredient and it's going to kind of be dispersed through the couple thousand meals we're producing every day. And then when the nonprofit, <clears throat> when the soup kitchen does need food, what we do is we just basically, you know, they order from us. We're just letting, that's how we treat it. And that's how we talk to the staff about it. I was in a staff meeting the other day and I'm like, you know, everybody needs to pretend that every rethink order going to a soup kitchen is worth $500. Because and we need to keep these clients and client relationships are really really important. We just treat it like we're catering them, yep. and that way they get what they need. They don't have to like a big part of the food waste issue is that nonprofits they get like a ton of stuff they throw out half of it. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> what we're able to do is just cater them. They take the food that they need. They serve what they have, and we say we ask them a couple of questions at the end of the week, which is how is the food? Did you have enough? And was it there on time? That's all we care about. 
Yep. That's that's really impressive. I think what you said, you know, what you said about respect and dignity as the starting point of all this is is so awesome and so important. And, and you know, again, you're, it sounds like you're really flipping a paradigm on its head. And one thing I really enjoy about this model too is you're leveraging uh, a group's built expertise. Like you're using culinary professionals who know how to transform food to solve this problem that you're talking about where, you know, not all ingredients are created equal. And, you know, while it's easy to maybe donate something like apples to a food bank where, you know, people know what to do with apples, they can just eat an apple as a snack. It's not the same with Thai bird chilies or celery root or bok choy or something where you need a little bit of skill and time, you know, and money to transform it. So I, I think that's just so huge. You know, I, I just as a brief aside, I remember at Imperfect for, for our third birthday, we decided to give away a thousand pounds of produce. And we literally went to Mission Dolores Park in SF and we're just handing out produce. And I had a very educational and humbling moment where I noticed that, um, a lot, you know, the homeless people were coming over to take the produce and they were loving the fruits and the berries and stuff. And then one guy came up to me and said, Hey, do you have more of that? Because, you know, while it's great that you have things like ginger and potatoes, you know, I don't have a kitchen. I don't have a way right. to cook this and transform it. And that was really humbling for me to, to realize that, Hey, we need to really think about the needs of the people we're trying to help, not just the feel good part about the act of giving. Cause the act of giving is great, but if what you're giving is not useful, it's kind of a broken form of giving. So, so I just, I love that you're really starting with that and, and embracing empathy uh, so much through your model. You know, you mentioned, you know, getting chefs to think differently. And I know, I think a lot of folks out there have heard about these Good Samaritan Acts. And I'd love to just explore what that means. How do you negotiate the legal issues around donating food? Because I think a lot of people worry about liability. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 um, something we've tackled head on, and it's still surprising to me. And my my our poor lawyer, uh, our general counsel, like that 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 she has to answer this question five times a week. Um, it's there is no liability. Liability, you, you none. <laughs> like so, what we do is we and people don't believe us, and we like hand them the Good Samaritan law. Like we like we have like a one pager that has like the state law and the federal law. And when they, cause we get that question all the time, we're like, no, like this is it. And like, if you're really concerned, talk to our lawyer. And then Luna has to pick up the phone and say, for like the millionth time, like you will not be held liable under any condition. And then plus that we actually indemnify them. So we say, okay, like even if for some reason that law didn't hold up in court or whatever, we will absorb you from any liability, any agent, employee, partner, sponsor, doesn't matter who it is, we will take on that burden. And <clears throat> I think what's important to note about that is that it doesn't mean that we are allowed to supersede any type of food safety precautions. It means that we have a massive responsibility to be a leader when it comes to food safety. And it's core to our program to make sure that that happens. So what we try to do is we invite people down we show them how it works. They get a sense of like how intense we are about food safety and the things that we put into place. Our kitchen is designed, we built it, to basically handle food in a safe way. Yep. And it's like first, we call it the first food recycling center because it's literally designed to take everything in, process, create meals, new things, and then push it out. And it's really challenging. Like they just, you know, I cooked for, and, and I know you had a cook, uh, culinary background as well. I, I cooked forever and, and every single person in three countries and five cities told me that like, oh, we can't donate that, so, huh. you know? Yeah. Wow. You, you know, it's it's so fascinating to me that, and you know, I've seen this, you know, firsthand in, in kitchens sometimes that it's easier and cheaper sometimes to throw something out than it is to take the time for a chef or a line cook to find a use for it. So, you know, how did you go about getting chefs to think differently about waste and really kind of start to see the economic value of donating their excess food? That's been, you know, that's been an upward, uh, you know, like uh, uh, an uphill battle for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to change minds. And it's only since, um, you know, we have a really amazing partner like Goldman Sachs, like they have been, they're super dedicated towards sustainability and have just gone leaps and bounds. But like getting the culinary team, um, to kind of change their head, you know, turn their heads a little bit and, and change their thinking has been, uh, you know, challenging 
Yeah. And it's not because they don't want to do it. It's just because they're, they're concerned about, you know, food safety. They're concerned about logistics. They're concerned about labor because they're running a business. So it's been an uphill battle and, you know, we've provided containers, we've done trainings, um, you know, to try to get there. And a lot of chefs um, have turned, you know, I got this amazing call yesterday from Brian Lockwood. He's the chef de cuisine of 11 Madison Park. Uh And he's like, Matt, just, just a heads up. We're changing the menu on Tuesday. And there's a potato dish that has, we get these beautiful potatoes, but we only use the center cut of the potato. Like you're going to have a lot of potatoes. Is that okay? And I was like, yes, thank you for calling. Oh, it was a little call, just a little conversation about it. And yeah. How you work it out. It goes a long way. But to answer your question, it's extremely difficult to get yeah. people to change their standard operating procedures. And what we've been trying to share with them, just so important is that you will save more money donating your food than you will throwing it away. That's huge. You'll save a lot more money. You, you're you're going to get a huge in-kind donation, suggested value, uh, a huge in-kind donation receipt. Carding bills are going up and up and up every year. Um, and then the PR value of it is huge. So yep. all you got to do is put the food in a box and it's super beneficial for your business. That's amazing. And showing folks that it can be simple, it can be easy, and is really the right thing to do in the long run. And I mean, and it also goes back to your point at the beginning, like there's no restaurant owner or chef out there twirling their mustache and thinking, how can I waste food today, right? They're, they're trying to run a business, but businesses run on routines and standard operating procedures. And so, yeah, it sounds like a real challenge here was just tweaking the business a little bit to add an extra step of, okay, and let's also donate. In addition to selling amazing food, let's also donate what we can't use. I'd love to just to kind of teach folks how this works. I'd love to kind of explore the journey of an ingredient here. Like, let's talk about these potatoes. Sure. So 11 Madison Park ha- is going to have these extra uh, potato ends, right? So walk me through what's the journey from an ingredient like these potatoes to go from an awesome New York restaurant to one of your kitchens and then out to one of your clients? Sure, 100%. So, you know, start when the 11 Madison Park receives them, you know, they'll wash them, they'll come from some beautiful farm, and they'll wash them and clean them and sort them, and they'll punch and they'll prep, and then they'll put them, uh, they'll keep them in a little bit of water so they don't oxidize in in a Lexon container and put it in the fridge. And and then every night, five nights a week, um, a truck will pull up by the back entrance of 11 Madison Park, two drivers will walk in, um, somebody will uh, check a box and initial on an iPad. The food will be picked up and put into a refrigerated van, refrigerated truck. It'll go down to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, and in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, it'll be put into a refrigerator overnight. The cook team will come in at about you know six in the morning, the following morning. And um, they'll see the potatoes. We partnered with RoboCoop, and this has been just like a huge huge thing for us. Um, and we have huge food processors. Yep. So potato skins are more than edible and they're golden Yukon potatoes. So they're delicious. And we're going to just put them in a robo coop with the dice attachment on it. Um, the large dice attachment, we're going to robo coop them back into water. We're going to drain the water, take it out. We're going to roast off all the potatoes on sheet trays. We're going to season them. And then we'll put some, we'll probably, we try to combine the starch and the protein just for, just for ease. And we'll put some roasted chicken on there or whatever beef we have or whatever meat that we're using that day. Yep. Um, we'll dress it in some type of sauce, you know, whether that's a pesto or, or a curry sauce or whatever it is. And then we'll uh, <clears throat> pack it up. It'll get labeled with where the, uh, all the ingredients in the food suggested reheating instructions, dietary restrictions, um, put into a container. And then the next day, and then that day, it'll get dropped off at uh, a soup kitchen where they'll put it in their refrigerator. They'll throw it in the oven right before dinner service. They'll get it really, really hot. And then they'll scoop it out and serve it. That's amazing. I, I, lo- I mean, thank you for sharing that detail. And you know, it sounds like you've just basically built a second restaurant, right? Like this almost just sounds like an adjacent restaurant to the other restaurant like you've just built a whole other supply chain that 
because it needs to be that specific, like without what all the steps you talked about, like refrigerating it, prepping it with care, but at scale, seasoning it properly, and then also including stuff like allergens and instructions, it might not be useful, but you've taken all the steps needed for it to be incredibly useful and also easy, it sounds like, for nonprofits to deal with. That's the key. We're trying to, we, philanthropy money is, is sometimes spent two or three times on the same thing. Huh. And it, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's, we spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, and with the best intentions and the best efforts trying to feed people. But we double down on efforts the same way that we double down on, you know, things in restaurants. You know, it always shocked me that in Midtown at like 6 a.m. every single day, there's probably like 25 guys juicing lemons all in different places. If wow. one person just juiced lemons and then composted the peels or made lemon oil out of it, like that would just be more efficient. Yeah. But there's soup kitchens all around the city that are just making and trying to figure out. And some people are getting parts of it. And it's just a logistical, it's just a logistics and su supply chain operation. You know, I, yeah. I really look at like goodwill and I say, wow, like goodwill and, and, and Salvation Army, like they figured, they figured it out. They just yeah. built a store where you, you give somebody something for free and like right behind you, they're selling it. Huh. Like that's crazy, you know? And we, we don't really associate that. Like nobody, for whatever reason, like that model, that, that idea that there should be like a secondary layer to the economy, you know, handling and redistributing this stuff is like just totally like, outside of everybody's purview for some reason. There just needs to be a system. We do it with cars, we do it yep. with clothes, we do it with construction materials, electronics, furniture. We do it with everything. We just gotta do it with food. That's really well said. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, it's a, obviously something of a educational journey. It's an uphill battle at times to get chefs to buy in. But I, I'd love to hear, you know, I've, I've watched some, I mean, and folks should check this out. There's a really inspiring video on your website. But one of my favorite parts of it was hearing some of the reactions from chefs and restaurateurs. So I'd, I'd love to just hear about what's the reaction been from uh, New York restaurateurs so far? New York restaurateurs are like, finally, that's been the, they're like, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> They've all like the restaurateurs, um, the people that are actually running and operating the business, not the kitchen are like, finally, somebody needed to do this. You know, yeah. we've been throwing out half our food, 40% of our food for years. It has a ton of value. We know it has a ton of value and our chefs and the, and the operators have just been saying, there's no place to put it. And here's this guy from Wisconsin, you know, screaming at the top of the lungs, I'll take it, I'll take it, you know, <laughs> so like, and, and they're just extremely thankful. Um, and that's what's really where the momentum has happened, has been from the top. That's awesome to hear. I mean, that must be very validating for you, I'd imagine, to, to because it would it would be really hard if the reaction was, ah, oh, like, this is so frustrating. Like, why won't he just let us, you know, go about our business? But but it sounds like folks are stoked and they're they're like, this was overdue. I mean, because like you said, it's, you know, you brought up a great point that, you know, there's there is this secondary market with cars, with clothes, with furniture. So why not food? Like, that's such a great point. And why not food? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's nuts. You know, restaurants are, are struggling and like they, they have a hard time. And I said, if Gap threw away 40% of their clothes every single night, there would be no Gap, hmm. you know, like there would be, there'd be no through the clothing store. And like, that's just how, you know, we're not, we, we make this beautiful product, you know, as chefs, we spend time, we train, we make beautiful stuff. And at the end of the night, we just dump everything into a trash bin. Like if we do that and then we can kind of say to the IRS, like, look, like we feel our suggestion is, is that this is worth this amount. The tax incentives can be massive. Yeah. Right now that the tax incentive mismatch is, is beyond fury infuriating, yep. especially that I think that the IRS is not getting the full benefit and the way that's going now, it's like, you know, somebody says they donate a hundred thousand pounds of food and they all, and, and then, you know, throughout the year and, you know, 40 to 50% of that ends up in the trash. Yeah. So it's the, it's not the government's writing something off so they can have to deal with getting rid of it and it's not working. It has yeah. to be looked at differently. Totally. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And and I love that you're thinking holistically about the system. You know, I've we work with a lot of nonprofits here at Imperfect and something I had heard that and basically in the past there've been these unfortunate situations where some organizations will donate a ton of food to kind of pad their donation stats and have these great PR lines like we donated all this stuff, but then the food bank you know, to your point earlier, might not have been able to really use most of it. So they end up actually having to waste a lot of it. So it's this unfortunate disconnect of incentives uh, where, you know, and even like maybe the food bank was stoked to say, oh yeah, we received this amount of food this year, but if they're not actually getting it all to the community and they have to trash half of it, it's really not feeding the end goal of, of feeding people. And so I think I guess I bring that up just to say, it seems to me like a big part of your model is properly aligning incentives, which it sounds like weirdly dry and economic, but it it kind of seems like that has been the missing piece here. And it sounds like maybe there's even more potential down the road for, you know, if, if the government were to say, really encourage this type of activity, then every business, not just restaurants, but like every business would be looking for ways to reduce waste. But it sounds like right now, you're, it's, it's still kind of this uphill battle because the incentives like aren't quite in, in line. Does, does that ring true to you? Yeah, a hundred percent. Like, I think that it's, it's, it's totally misaligned. And I think the ability to, you know, like check a box in some sustainability, you know, Slack channel at some major corporation is, is so easy. And it's so hard to see what's real realistically going on. And the food banks are just getting crushed sometimes because of this and, and hard, it's hard for them to manage it. And then, you know, what ultimately happens is that the food banks have to pay for waste removal and it's, it's just not, it's just not working, you know? Totally. I I, I think that's really important. And again, like it all comes back to your earlier point. It's not like in this situation where, you know, it's not like there's bad actors. If people are acting in good faith and, and trying to do the right thing, but because it's a very disjointed effort, it sounds like, it seems like that's where kind of the waste and the, the you know, misalignment is happening. And you know, I, mean, I love that point you bring up, but ironically, food banks sometimes have to pay to actually get rid of food or to, you know, they can't even use everything. Like if they don't have the walk-in space to store tons and tons of fresh food, like it doesn't matter how much they're getting. So, you know, we really do do have to think holistically here. And I just really appreciate that that seems to be so central to your model is like, let's zoom out, let's think holistically and try to get everyone pushing in the same direction. Because you know, I, I love that point you brought up earlier that right now we're spending like two to three times what we need to just because we're having to spend the same dollar over and over because it's like, it's not synced up. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, it's it, it, the, the one of the big incentives I had and, and being so passionate about Rethink is that, you know, it, if I wanted to do something, you know, impactful with my life, this is literally the lowest hanging fruit. Like, yeah. I'm not going to solve cancer. I'm not going to cure cancer. I'm not going to fix education. There's, I have no idea what to do about the homelessness problem. But people getting rid of their food and there being an abundance of it and people not having access to it is like reasonably simple. And our, you know, our approach has just been to do back to the theme of this. Everything is just to do what's needed. Yeah. And it's, everything's it, been creative reflexively. It's not like all of this was completely drawn out. I was like, you know, I'll get a truck. The food will come in. We'll make stuff. We'll give it away. Original yeah. idea. You know, <laughs> like it's just kind of evolved by, oh yeah, there is an issue here. Like how can we kind of shift our model a little bit so that we can get involved there and, and work it out and just be able to collect the most amount and produce the most amount with the, at the cheapest cost. Yeah. You know, it, it sounds like you've learned a ton, uh, you know, about how, how these things work, you know, how these systems of nonprofits and for-profits and just food in general work. You know, I'd love to zoom out and let's just talk about food insecurity in America for a minute here. You know, what is, what is your experience with Rethink taught you about, you know, why are so many folks going hungry and how is, how can we as a society better help our neighbors? Sure, 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 sure. I, you know, I think that, um, I'm going to ask you two points to your, to your question here, uh, two answers. You know, first of all, what I learned immediately was, um, that, you know, there's this perception of food insecurity and everybody goes to like some homeless person sleeping on a bench. And that's not at all true. It's the same way that it's not true when people think about food waste, food excess. It's not, 
a big pile of vegetables, you know, rotten in a pile. That's not, that's that's a hundred percent, not what we're talking about. So if everybody could exit those two images, it'd be great. And (laughs) we're like talking about somebody who has uh, a college student um, who goes to a great university who got scholarships, who's working really hard and also has a part-time job. We're talking about a mother who has, you know, a full-time job and also, you know, has kind of a gig job on the side. We're talking about a high school student in the Midwest who, you know, his parents split up and, you know, one parent got a bunch of money and the parent got a little money, but the cumulative sum of money was over six figures. Food insecurity affects so many people. And just like we see these issues in our supply chain, it's the same way as food insecurity. You, You can't just focus on the big dumpster and say, ah, there's the issue or the homeless person and say, ah, there's the issue. Yep. It, it's systemic. It's, it's in everything. And we feel it and we see it. I, I guest lectured at Columbia University and this is really where the core of our, of, of what we're trying to do in 2020 exists. Great university, Columbia, amazing Ivy league. And, you know, we know because of statistics that at least 40% of the students are suffering so, or in a socioeconomic situation where they, are suffering to the point where they probably do not have access to food. And I'm teaching a class about 30 or 40 to 30 to 40 people. Well, and I said, who, when's the last time anybody's got like had to get a free meal, emergency food service, you know, gets low income, whatever, anything. And I said, you know, this is a great sample size. There'll be at least one. Nobody ever raises their hand. Hmm. And nobody ever raises their hand because one, they don't view themselves as food insecure. And two, nobody wants to be seen. So why would anybody who won't even raise their hand for the sake of a lecture in a class, they're not going to go wait in line in a soup kitchen. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So what Rethink is trying to do is, and what we've realized is that, you know, 75% of the people that actually need this don't, don't use it. They won't go to a soup kitchen. So how do we fix that? So what we're doing is in 2020, um, and we're going to be, we're not going to tell anybody where it is and we're building it out right now, but, um, actually just signed the lease yesterday, but, uh, we're opening a cafe where it's $3 for a meal. There's no menu. It's one option. And then there's a dietary restriction option and it's $3 and it's different okay. every day. It's three bucks and it goes to fund rethink. Wow. I love so that. You're not, yeah, you're not, it's not like, it's not charity. It's not yeah. free you know, you own it. It's, it's yours. You know, you can complain. We'll have a Yelp, you know, like, you, know, like <laughs> you can be angry about it and you'll have the ability to pay a meal forward. If you want, you'll have the ability to buy a subscription pass for a month if you want. Um, but giving people ownership and really the, the reality of it is that we're trying to use economics to say, all right, why are people obese in low income neighborhoods? And they're obese because they're just, they're eating. They're just it's just the options for food are just so awful that it leads to obesity. Yeah. So if we can create healthy options that are cheaper than our competition, which would be like McDonald's or Bodega Food or something like that, if we can be cheaper than our competition, then hopefully we can kind of you know build a more nutritionally based diet for for a, a great community. Uh, you know, so it sounds like that you're one of the first things you learned was that food insecurity, like food waste, is not one size fits all. Like it comes in many different shapes and sizes. Right. And so in in your solution, in some level, you have to reconcile with that. And you can't just come with like this template of like, well, this worked in this situation. So it should I should use it every time. It's like, no, you gotta you gotta figure out where people are coming from and understand kind of their challenges. And, and you bring up a point that actually uh, we had Doug Rao on the podcast who used to work at Trader Joe's. Oh, I love that guy. He's amazing. Yeah. He runs Daily Table. Check him out if you haven't. Uh, any folks listening, he's a really inspiring man. But he brought up something that you underlined as well, which is that a lot of times folks are more eager to preserve their dignity than they are to get the food or help they need, which is totally understandable, right? Like we want that sense of dignity and being self-reliant. And like all of us feel that. And so... As a society, we've got to find ways to create dignified 
you know, ways to get healthy food. Because otherwise, if it's just this kind of handout that people feel like you said guilty about accepting, it's not scalable. And it's not uh, really compassionate as well. Like this, this shouldn't just be this one sided charity, like we want to make it it sounds like a, a participatory process, right? Yeah, it's about community. You know, like that, that's what it is. We all have our roles here. We all do something here. And, you know, that's what we're trying to build. And our goal is, is that if we can successfully, it's going to take us a year, you know, at least, you know, probably three months to open and then like the rest of the year to flush out the business model and get it right. But we, I don't know what, I don't know what people want in your neighborhood. I'm from Wisconsin. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I have no idea. So like what we're going to do is, you know, first we've been asking and trying to get some input. But then second, the goal is to give these like nonprofit distribution centers to the community. Like if yeah. this works and we, we don't know because we haven't tried it, but if it works and it goes well, we're basically going to take this model and give it to people in the community and say like, hey, like this is a nonprofit. Um, like because we hear a lot of people that reach out to us that don't have a physical space for a soup kitchen, but are like really frustrated with what's going on in their neighborhood and they want to do something. So that we, but we can't give them a physical space. So we're going to be like, Hey, this is your space. We're going to have you give feedback to the rethink commissary kitchen about the menu. We're going to have you do your own programs, your own thing and pay like two people of your, in your staff. We just ask that you send a percentage back to the commissary kitchen to cover the cost of operations. Yeah. And that's what we think we can do. We think that we can actually it's going to be a long, hard path, but we think that we can actually make this all totally self sustaining and if we did that it would make a huge dent in both the food security and food access issues and security issues amazing that's so cool so so you said in terms of how we can better help folks you said the first thing was we really have to understand that you know not all food insecurity looks the same and you said there was you said you had a two-part answer did we get to both parts no i just i want to say because i consumers and i think we kind of talked about this a little bit but like consumers like are asking me all the time they reach out like how can i help yeah you know, the thing that I, I have to stress, and I've been really, my 2020 goal is to really get this across everywhere that I, I am I'm lucky enough to speak publicly. Um, it is up to every single podcast listener. And, you know, uh, two years ago, I would have said, go online and donate. I'm not asking you to do that. If you want to, great. But if not, whatever. Yeah. Buy with your dollar. You know, if, if you want to, Call your local food bank or food rescue organization and say, hey, who, who are your, who's your stellar partners? Do you have any like great coffee shops? If they say, whatever coffee, go there. Yeah. You know, tell your employer, go to your employer, say, hey, who are you donating to? Where, how is this food happening? Like, where's this food going? I see this every day. Like, what's up? Like, we got to be doing something. We're a really cool company. And if they say, I don't know, or I'm unsure, be like, Hey, I'll help. I'll spearhead this. Yeah. You know, share every article. Every time you hear that some organization or some company is truly doing something well, if you find out like, you know, and, and I'll shout made nice in 11 Madison park, great restaurants. If you go and you're, and you, and you eat there, you're supporting sustainability. Yeah. That's, that's how you support. That's how you do it. You, you have your job in whatever you do or, you know, whatever your life is, your, your job is to do that in this community. But if you want this to actually happen, you have to vote with your dollar and go up to the person at whatever, wherever you go and ask them, what do they do with their food at the end of the night? And if they say it's illegal to donate, explain to them that it's not. 100%. It's, it's I think about, I just pissed off like a thousand waiters right now. But. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you have to ruffle some feathers to make change though. And that's what I really respect about your model is, you, again, like we started with, you didn't settle for, oh, that's too bad. I guess we have to chuck it. You know, you said, no, we can do better and we should do better. And I think what you just said, obviously vote with your dollar is huge, but it sounds like also a part of this, what I'm hearing is, you have to um, uh, almost like vote with connections, build connections that didn't exist before, whether that's knowledge, whether it's connecting people to articles, connecting people to other businesses. Like we're all going to do this and succeed better if we're connected than siloed. Because it sounds like part of the problem, even in past donation efforts, was that they were too siloed. Like people were checking off their own organization's boxes, and but not thinking about, 
does this actually make sense with what's upstream from me and what's downstream from me? And, and I, I just really respect this idea of like, let's always be holistic. Let's always be connecting and always asking more questions. Cause like, that's, I think good solutions often have that in common. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's that stuff at the end of your little survey, you know, or whatever at your order, you know, like, you know, people read that, you know, yep. rethink read that you read, yep. if you put a comment into the rethink website, like three people will look at it and we'll talk about it, yep. you know? And if you guys have any questions, if anybody has any questions ever, they're in a situation, you know, we're always challenging ourselves. We always like to kind of go into these, you know, strange, you know, situate with people like, how do you take gala food or whatever it is? And, you know, we're, we're always up for a challenge. We might not have the answer now, but we'll definitely dig in and, and try to figure it out. Totally. I, I appreciate that. You know, I think w- with food waste, it's it's obviously a big problem that happens at every stage of the, the food chain, including in folks' homes. And I know we have a lot of folks uh, in Perfect Customers and podcast listeners that you know, struggle with food waste in their own personal lives. I'd love to hear just in, kind of in closing, like, you know, you obviously you're a chef, you've worked in food waste for a while now. How do you try to reduce food waste in your personal life? And are there any kind of low hanging fruit tips you'd recommend for folks at home? Oh yeah, for sure. It's a uh, shop, uh, grocery shop more. Yeah. You know, go a lot, you know, like, uh, me and my fiance were, she, you know, she's, she's got me on a diet now, but she, uh, she, we, we buy the proteins, uh, you know, we, we protein, three days a week. We buy it every, every time we go, uh, plan. And then also just like before you throw it out, write it down, you know, just kind of log it. Don't, don't weigh it or whatever. Don't go crazy, but just say, okay, like don't hate yourself because you threw away a head of broccoli because it was getting moldy. Just take a moment and say, okay, like this week I threw away two heads of broccoli one bit of, you know, half a thing of salad and some expired yogurt. And then next week, buy one less thing of yogurt, buy one less head of broccoli and buy the smaller portion of salad. Yeah, it's easy. I, I think that last bit is, is really important. Uh, you're actually the first guest that's recommended kind of tracking your waste, but I, I think that's really crucial in that just it encourages a sense of uh, accountability, but it also just enables you to see concretely what you're wasting. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of cleaning out your fridge regularly for the same reason that cleaning out your fridge regularly forces you to see what you're overbuying, what you're underbuying, what you've hung on to for a month for some reason, what you've squirreled away and forgot that you bought. Like you can't hide from yourself when you just bring everything out like that. And I think, you know, so many of us work at businesses that are driven by like data and improvement and constantly meeting to check in about stuff. And then it's kind of funny or silly to think that we don't then apply that rigor that we know about to our own lives when we're looking to do something like food waste. So yeah, that's huge. Just yeah. like make, make a record for yourself. It's, it's, it's not that hard and it does enable you to make positive changes that also save you money, right? Like anytime you're throwing out food at home, like that's part of your grocery bill. You're just chucking into the trash. So totally. Right. Good point. Yeah. You write a grocery list, right? Uh, just on the bottom of it, write a, you know, food waste list and you'll, you know, it's not, it's not so hard. And the important thing is people aren't hard on themselves, you know, yep. or hard on other people. Yep. You know, don't be, don't worry. Community, you know, we're all in it. We're yep. all fighting the good fight. We're all in it together. Yeah. Got to lead with compassion for sure. You know, this has been super awesome. I'd love to transition to this speed round. Are you ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Amazing. Okay. So a couple closing questions to let folks get to know you a little better and end on a fun note here. So um, the, my last question or my first of the round, basically, I used to ask, is there anything you wish I had asked about that I didn't, but people always take that as like a report card in the episode. So I'm pivoting it to basically, is there anything you'd encourage folks listening to kind of follow up with on this episode or maybe explore in more depth on their own time? Um. I don't have an immediate answer. No, no, no worries. At all. No worries at all. It's always good to ask. Um, what's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks listening should try? Uh, dry January. Yeah. Amazing. I, amazing. Try to, I tried to sober September last year and really surprising. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would and would definitely recommend to anyone who's curious. And good way to start the year now. Yeah, totally, totally. If you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? Uh, you know, I thought a lot about this. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I would do ratatouille, um, because it's my favorite thing. 
But I think what the big thing is, is I would serve it to them. I would, I would, I would actually make sure that they were comfortable and they were eating and they had wine and water. That would be more important than I think the actual dish. That's amazing. Yeah. I think that that act of, uh, of nourishment and full hospitality, yeah, like you said, like making them feel all cozy in addition to making the food. So huge. Really cool. Um, what's an ingredient you couldn't live without and why? Um, lemon oil. It just makes everything taste good. Amazing. How do you make lemon oil? You just, and it's, you know, it's always a byproduct too. You just take the, the zest or, you know, from, from lemons that you've juiced or whatever and slowly cook it in oil at a low temperature and just kind of, it'll infuse with this bright, robust, you know, kind of lemony flavor and then drizzle on a salad. You know, if you don't want to make a salad dressing or you, you want to season something quick, just a little lemon oil, salt, you're good. Whoa. I'm going to have to try that and we'll definitely include a link in the show notes as well. What is your least favorite thing to waste? Um, protein, uh, animal protein. I mean, it's just, it's just so the amount of water and, you know, you, you killed a bunch of crops building that protein, you know, that, that getting that steak. And then the idea that you got to throw it away, uh, just breaks my heart. Yep, totally. And what's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, <laughs> my fiance, she loves this. Uh, my heart will go on. Ooh, wow. We'll do it together. That's, that's a ballad. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> she's a huge karaoke fan. She's, doing, she's always, you know, bringing me. But. That's great. We've had, a, we've had a string of guests that for a while that were like, I've never actually done karaoke. And so it's refreshing. To <gasps> it, but it's alive and well out there. If it's Doug Roush has never done karaoke, that my next email is to Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Look at it, we're creating change in the food system, one karaoke song at a time. That's awesome. Uh, who is somebody you admire tremendously, and what do you admire about them? Uh, you know, the the chair of our board, uh, he's just a, a really successful guy. Yep. And how, hum, how humble he is, is just mind-blowing. Like, he has like a five-star Uber rating. He's just nice to everybody. He takes the time to listen to everybody. And I think that is actually probably the key to success, but it just shocks me every time. Um, he's just a heck of a guy. That's amazing. What's his name? Uh, Julian Baker. Julian Baker. Awesome. What a man. Love that. Leading with humility. And finally, what are you grateful for this week? Uh... What am I grateful for this? I would say my business partner, uh, Winston Chu, he's, um, he's a hell of a guy. And, and we're taking on this new project and the way that he's been able to think through this stuff and, and be there and be supportive and, you know, just always picks up the phone. It's just like, you know, you can't do anything without really strong people around you. And I'm just glad that he's, uh, he's a friend. Amazing. So cool. Matt Joswiak, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? Uh, you can check us out on Instagram at rethinkfood.nyc or you can just go to rethinkfood.nyc. Uh, it's our website. Um, shoot us a comment, ask us a question, get engaged. We like, uh, if you're in New York, come hang out. Amazing. And we'll also have links to everything we talked about today in our show notes and on our website, unwastedpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or comments, shoot us an email at feedback at unwastedpodcast.com. Matt Joswiak, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks so much.